Um, Micah was written, he prophesied about 700 years before what we're celebrating tomorrow, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And at the, um, I don't know, several generations before he prophesied, there was a king. His name was King David. We all know King David. King David was the unifier of Israel, that there were 12 tribes of Israel that were unified underneath David's good reign. At some point after that, David's son Absalom um, did a, a coup and tried to steal the kingdom from his father David. And he succeeded with 10 of the tribes of the 12, and 10 of the tribes of the 12 tribes went north, and it became a divided kingdom. And we, we had a, a northern kingdom with 10 tribes and a southern kingdom with two tribes. And during this time when Micah prophesied, he prophesied to both the northern kingdom of the ten tribes and the southern kingdom of the two tribes. But about halfway through chapter 1, it appears as though the northern kingdom was wiped out by Assyria. That the ten tribes in the north were, uh, were attacked, they were invaded, they were besieged, and um, wiped off the map and, the, um, and, and history forever. So Micah's attention went to prophesying to the southern kingdom or the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin. The reason that the northern kingdom, that God allowed, if you will, the northern kingdom to be taken out was because of their sin. Their primary sin of idolatry, that they put other gods before the God. And Micah in writing this book has a threefold purpose. First of all is to remind God's people of their past deliverance. And I would encourage you, if you weren't here last week for Jason's sermon on chapter 6, um, listen to it. He does a very good job of reminding God's people of their past deliverance as he unpacks chapter 6. The second reason for Micah writing this is to remind God's people of their future hope. Number one, remind people of their past deliverance. Number two, of their future hope. And number three, it's to encourage God's people in the southern kingdom and God's people throughout all time to turn from idolatry, to turn from covetousness, to turn from injustice so that they can avoid discipline of a holy and just God. Micah has reminded the believing remnant that in spite of their sin, that Yahweh will gather them together one day into, like sheep into a fold. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. They shall dwell secure, and he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he, Yahweh, the coming Messiah, actually shall be their peace. And this long-awaited peacemaker that we know, or this this peacemaker that we know who he is on this side of history, Jesus Christ, this long-awaited peacemaking shepherd king would be born in the lowly town of Bethlehem. That that was actually prophesied in Micah 700 years before Jesus was born of a virgin in Bethlehem. It blows me away every time I even say that. This king that Micah was pronouncing that would shepherd his people and would be born in uh, in Bethlehem, he described him as the king from of old, from of ancient days. That this Messiah is none other than the one who created the heavens and the earth. 
This Messiah is none other than the one who would come from the seed of Eve. And the seed of Abraham. And the seed of David. Last week, as I mentioned, Jason walked us through chapter 6, where we saw Micah encourage God's people, the believing remnant, to believe his past faithfulness, to, to remember, excuse me, his past faithfulness, and let that past faithfulness of Yahweh motivate us to a life of obedience. We don't need more rules. We need more intentional remembering of what God has done in the past and more intentional remembering of what he promises to do in the future. And you know what? Mike is going to hammer these truths home to us here in chapter 7 in this beautiful Advent book. God is holy. God is just. God cannot tolerate sin, and all sin must be punished. All sin, throughout all generations, in all people, it must be punished. But at the same time, as we've talked about, God is what? He's lopsidedly loving. That God is lopsidedly loving. His steadfast love towards His people, you and I, if you put your faith in Him for the forgiveness of your sins, His steadfast love endures forever. There's actually nothing you can do to cause Him to leave nor forsake you. It's His steadfast love towards His people that actually is, it defines who He is. It's His very nature. In Exodus chapter 34, 5 through 7, the Lord described Himself as this. He says this to Moses, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him, Moses, there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will no means clear the, the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to a third and fourth generation. God's plan from the beginning was to rescue or save a people for himself. And there were, there's three great enemies that stood in the way and that stand in the way of God's rescue. And, and the, the, uh, the, uh, God's people of old might have thought that those, those enemies were Assyria and Babylon and Egypt um, we might think that our enemies are some type of, of uh, uh, liberal, um, maybe homosexual, uh, maybe, um, I don't know what it is, some type of uh, something that can really um, keep them and us from God. But, but this, there, are, there are three great enemies that stand in the way of God's plan. That's it. There's no other enemies that can um, hold back um, God's steadfast and loving uh, enduring love. And those enemies are sin, Satan, and death. And here's what I'm going to, you're going to be reminded of four things today in this passage, in this final chapter. First, you're going to be reminded that God's love is steadfast. Next, you're going to be encouraged to look to the Lord. You're going to be encouraged to wait for the God of your salvation. And you're going to be reminded that no matter what's going on in your life, no matter what's going on, no matter how um, quiet it is, that God hears you. That God hears you. 
I'm not one that is um, very patient. I'm not one who often um, looks to the Lord and waits for the God of my salvation. Um, I'm one that just kind of charges through and knocks walls down. And I want to grow in that, actually. This, this passage has encouraged me to, um, that A, what I already know is that I can't solve anybody's problems. I can't fix anybody or anything. I can't fix the culture that we live in. But I can look to the Lord. I can wait for the God of my salvation and know that one day he will make all things right. No matter what I'm going through, no matter how crooked and backwards our culture is, no matter what you're going through, that he will make all things right. And what he calls us to do is to look to him, to wait for him, and to know that he hears you in no matter, no matter what you're going through. When we look at the first six verses, we see Micah lament the sins of the culture that have made their way into Jerusalem. He's lamenting not so much the sins of the culture, even though that bothers him, woe is me. But what he's lamenting is that the sins of the culture have infiltrated the four walls of Jerusalem in the same ways that the sins of the culture have infiltrated the church in America today. Micah grieves the fact that God's people in that generation look no different than the world. And we see in verse 1 that Micah is grieved by the lack of fruitfulness and obedience to Yahweh and his covenant. You see, the people in God's people in Micah's generation are letting truth be defined by the culture rather than by God. In that culture, like our culture today, truth is being defined in relative terms, and laws are being changed to fit the truth of their times. And we see in verses 2 through 4, Micah actually describes what's going on with the people, God's people in that culture. And Micah's probably exaggerating here at some level. Uh, But this is what it feels like to the people of God when the church, or Jerusalem in that case, starts adopting the values of the culture they live in. It feels like we're all headed in that direction. He says in verse 2, he says, there is no one upright. An upright means pleasing or living for the Lord. Mike is lamenting those who claim the name of Yahweh, yet live in accordance to the culture, serving their man-made idols, coveting what others have, and treating others unjustly. They've forgotten their deliverance from Egypt. They have forgotten their identity as God's covenant people. They have forgotten that they're called to be in the world, yes, but not of the world. It says in these verses that they all lie in wait for blood and they hunt the other with a net. In other words, they are willing to spill the blood of others to maintain their idolatrous lifestyle, to promote their agenda. And it says they're not just um, accidentally doing evil. It says their hands are on the plow of evil. 
Verse 3, they do it well. Is it Colonel Sanders that does chicken right? These, these people of Israel do evil well. The leaders, both religious and civil, are in the middle of this doing evil well. And instead of standing for righteousness and justice, they're easily swayed with a bribe, it says. Even those appointed to uphold justice are corrupt. It says they conspire together to do evil. Their plans are woven together. And you see that happens. That happens in politics as well. And I'm not going to, don't worry, I'm not going to go down this road very far. So if you, I just saw, I just saw, uh, I don't think my wife's in here. Well, there it goes. Wow. Lord, was that you? <laughs> I'm going to need that water in just a minute. But we're, we're not, would you mind? Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, Jerry. Don't catch a place on fire. Not only, not only did the Lord take my water bottle, he raptured it. Thank you. Can you give Jer- Jerry a golf clap? Thank you. It says they're, they're, they conspire to do evil. Their plans are woven together. And you know what? Uh, and I'm not going to go too far down this road, but we're, our allegiance is to Yahweh. Our allegiance is to His Word. And I see Christians on both sides of the aisle um, making blind allegiance to one party or to one politician. And we, we, we should vote, we should, we should care, but our allegiance is to Yahweh. He says this, he says, he says in verse 4, the, the best of them is like a briar. The best of humanity, those who are put in place to lead, the best that we have are appointed or elected are like a briar or a thorn hedge. The best of them are hurting others, probably by their partial injustice. That was happening in Micah's day. Micah warns them at the end of verse 4, the day of your watchman, of your punishment has come. Now their confusion is hand. The, the watchman is, a, is the guy that is on the highest part of the wall that is, um, is going to sound the horn when the enemy comes. And we already know from chapter 1 that Micah says that the enemy, that Assyria, is at the gate of Jerusalem. But we also know when we look at chapter 5 and we look back at 2 Kings is that Assyria actually never takes over Jerusalem. That King Hezekiah fasts and he begs the Lord that Assyria would would relent. And the Lord um, wiped out 165,000 of them in that day. So what might Micah be talking about here? That the day of your watchman, of your punishment has come. Now their confusion is at hand. You see, Jerusalem was looking at the wickedness from the outside the, the enemy from the outside that was going to come and take them over. And it seems like what Micah is doing here is he's telling them that their punishment has come. Is, it's a result of the influence from the outside that has polluted the hearts and the minds of God's people. 
It's not, it's not a punishment that they're going to be taken out, but it's a punishment that they are taking on the identity of the pagan world. And then we see in the next verses after that, verses 5 and 6, we see the result of that. We see moral decay in the culture in Jerusalem. Micah says you don't know who to trust because everyone is out to promote and propel their own agendas and their own idols. They covet what you have, and as a result, they promote injustice. He says you can't trust your neighbors. You can't place your confidence in a friend. You can't trust your wife. It's a son against a father, daughter against a mother, daughter-in-law against a mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. Both social and family relationships have broken down as a result of God's people taking on the identity of the pagan culture rather than hanging on to the identity of Yahweh. And that's happening in, our, in America, in the church today. It does, you don't have to look past the headlines um, one day to see that some prominent pastor, some prominent church has moved away from historical Christian orthodoxy. And what they used to call sin, because God's word calls sin, they no longer call it sin. And that's where we're at. That's where we live. And that's what we need to prepare ourselves for. You see, when the truth is no longer the standard for society, then everything else is going to fall apart. Verse 7. But as for me, Micah says, but as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Micah is grieving over the sins of the pagan culture that have infiltrated and polluted the hearts and minds of God's people. But like a splash of cold water. I just see Micah Micah shaking his head. As for me, I'm going to look to the Lord. I'm going to wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. His despair turns to remembering the faithfulness and the character and the promises of his God. Yes, all of this is true. This is happening in the culture. The culture has degraded. All seems hopeless. But, the big but of scripture. Whenever you see but, it is a It's a sign where just before the but Micah or whoever is talking about the depravity and the hopelessness of the world. But he says, but, but God, but I will look to God. I will look to the Lord. He will hear me. He is the sole source of my peace, of my hope and my love. He says, I will look to the Lord. This is a picture of leaning in and pressing our face up against the window, looking to the Lord. My wife turned me on to this little story that I'm going to read you. Um, I'm not going to tell you who the author is because I'm afraid you'll Google it and judge me. (laughs) Actually, I think he's a pretty solid guy. Um, Recently, I read about an incident in the life of Bud Wood the founder of what has become one of the finest homes for mentally challenged children and adults. It's called Shepherd's Home, and it is in Union Grove, Wisconsin. Anybody ever heard of that by by any chance? Have you really? Wow, very cool. Wisconsin, eh? Right on. In that facility, they care and minister to many children with Down syndrome. The staff at Shepherd's Home 
makes a concentrated effort to present the gospel to their residents. As a result, many of those at the home have come to faith in Jesus Christ. They have learned how deeply Jesus loves them and that he wants to make them whole and be with them forever. In fact, he has prepared a place for them in his home in heaven and could return from the sky at any moment to take them there. On a tour of the home with a friend, Bud happened to remark that one of the greatest daily maintenance problems the staff faces is smudged windows. Smudged windows? His friend asked. Why is that? Bud smiled and said, you can walk through Shepherd's home. Any time of day. And you'll see some of these children standing with their hands, their noses, and their faces pressed to the glass. Looking over at his perplexed friend, Bud added, they're watching for Jesus. They keep checking to see if Christ is coming back to take them to heaven. The simple minds and hearts of these brothers and sisters ought to teach you and I to glance up once in a while to see if Jesus might be on his way to take us home. It's a neat picture of looking to the Lord and waiting for the Lord of our salvation. When I look to the culture and I see its decay, And the consequences that the northern kingdom reaped, Micah says, I can feel it. He gets mad and he's fearful. But he says, I don't place my hope in this life. I don't place my hope actually in this culture improving. I will wait for the God of my salvation. He will finally rescue me from my sin and the pain and suffering and wickedness of this world. My Lord, my God will hear me in my pain, in my fear, in my doubt, no matter what it is that you're processing, your God will hear you. And I want to caution us here is that all over scripture, um, very few places does it say that God will answer me. Very few places. There's a few places. But all over scripture it says that my God will hear me. Your God will hear you. Ralph Erskine said this. He says, it is enough for a praying heart that it has a hearing God. It means first, literally, that he will hear me as a listener. Let me explain that. Some people listen, but they don't hear. I'm one of those with my wife. That my wife, Nancy, of 38 years, can be talking to me about her fears, about just the um, loneliness and the pain that she's experienced as a result of her loss of her sister in February, and her dad almost dying. And I can be no more moved by her situation than if I was watching the news. I'm hearing her. Or I'm listening to her, but I'm not necessarily hearing her. And sometimes in our listening, we're not truly hearing. Not just the words. I I hear her words. But what I don't hear at times is her pain 
and her emotions and the reality of what the speaking person, my wife in this case, is sharing. I don't know about you, but the type of person that I like to confide in and that my wife likes to confide in, and I'm, by God's grace, growing into that for her, is one who weeps with her, who is really afflicted with her affliction. It is greatly comforting to have a person with you who feels what you're feeling, who frets as you fret, who groans as you groan. That is the truest form of consolation, is it not? To know that somebody hears us and sympathizes with us and empathizes with us, that weeps when we weep, And that is how my God hears me. That is how your God hears you. He feels with you. He sympathizes with you. I want to encourage you, church, to lean into the Lord. No matter what's going on, lean into the Lord. Wait for the God of your salvation who will rescue you and know that he hears you. Let's look at these last 12 verses. Verses 8 and 10, we're going to do those together. Here, um, Micah is speaking on behalf of the believing remnant. And he said, rejoice, rejoice not over me, my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be light to me. Then my enemy will see, and shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like mire of the streets. God will have the last word. Assyria has been the great enemy in the background of this book, but we've talked about it before, that Assyria is a type of a greater enemy who will finally be destroyed by the Messiah and his work. And the greater enemies, as we've talked about, are Satan, sin, and death. There is no final defeat for God's people. When all is dark and dire, he is light. Even as an exile, he will rescue. There's nothing from the outside that can bring us lasting harm. When I fall, when you fall, I will rise. You will rise. There's nothing that can hold us down. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Nothing can thwart his promises. So Assyria, rejoice for a little while. Even though you may win the battles along the way, the victory has already been assured. Even though I fall, I will rise. And the dark times of this sinful world will one day be light. So I ask, Satan, where is your authority? Sin, where is your power? Death, where is your sting? You see, the the, the only enemies that can bring you any harm have been defeated. And they will be put together once and for all as we wait with our faces pressed up against the glass for Jesus' final return to consummate our final salvation. One day, pain will be turned into rejoicing. We go back to verse 9. And Michael says, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out of the light. I shall look upon his vindication. So Micah in verses 8 through 10 talked about the enemies on the outside. 
He was thinking of Assyria. The enemies, enemies on the outside are Satan. Other, uh, maybe, maybe evil agendas. But now Micah refers to the enemy on the inside. He says, I have sinned. And I deserve the indignation of the Lord or the anger aroused by the Lord. I deserve his wrath. He, the Lord, however, will plead my cause and judgment will be executed for me. Thank you, Jesus, that we know on this side of the cross that judgment was executed for you. To appease a wrathful God. And that we now have an advocate who intercedes for us. That this side of salvation, yes, you and I sin. Yes, you and I transgress. Yes, you and I get caught in our iniquities. But the victory, the ultimate victory has been won as we fight the little daily battles. In this uh, 11 through 13, there's we got to distinguish between several voices like Jason had to last week. In 11 through 13, we see Micah speaking on behalf of himself. It's Micah speaking to Judah. And he says, a day for the building of your walls. In the day the boundary shall be extended. In that day they will come to you from Assyria, from the cities of Egypt, from the Egypt to the river. From sea to sea, from the mountain to mountain, but the earth will be desolate because of the inhabitants for the fruits of their deeds. You know, quite frankly, I would submit this to you for your own study. I've got some thoughts I'm going to share with you as to what uh, Micah might be talking about here. He says, yes, build walls. Build walls, but let them be walls of your heart. Let them be walls of your mind. Let them be walls of your conscience. If you think about it, what, he is, what, what they're being disciplined for, what they're being judged for, is because they have allowed the, the um, idolatry and the covetousness and the injustice of the pagan world to infect their hearts and minds so that they now have identified with the pagan world instead of identifying with Yahweh who has set them free from those things. Build the walls, but build the walls of your, around your heart and your mind and your conscience. Build walls that resist the beliefs and the lifestyles of the culture we live in. However, don't put up walls of who, can, who you think can be delivered. Don't put up walls that that, that that class of people is beyond help. The good news is for all the nations, including those that he mentions here in verse 11, Assyria and Egypt, which were the arch enemies of God's people. That the good news is for all nations, including those you consider enemies, those you're most fearful of. Think of that in your own mind for a minute. Who is it? What is it that happened maybe in Windsor in this last week that has got you all up in arms? Because of what's happening in our public square in Windsor. Should we um, stand against that at some level? Absolutely. But the people that are promoting that agenda are not our enemies. They are people that are made in the image of the triune God. There are people who are in need of a savior just like you and I are in need of a savior. And I'm not going to give you any hints today as for another sermon on how we live this out. I don't know. But I do know it's with truth and it's with love.
I do know that we have a vote. I do know that we have a say because we're tax-playing citizens. But at the same time, the people that some of us are vilifying are the same people that are made in the image of the triune God who Jesus came to rescue from their sins in the same way that he came to rescue you and I for our sins. So let's have a conversation around this. I've struggled. Remember that God can save the evilest of enemies. In verse 14, Micah cries out to Yahweh now. Now his voice, now he's speaking to Yahweh. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. Michael is calling out to the Lord on behalf of his people, the believing remnant. And he's longing for the good old days. He's longing for the days when they were delivered from Egypt and they, after 40 years they ended up in the promised land. In the land of Bashan, it's, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's a famed area for its green and lush pastures. And Gilead was a, was a land known for its healing balms that could cure uh, all diseases. Or not all diseases, but a lot of diseases. I don't even know which ones. But he says, shepherd your people with your staff and your flock of your inheritance who dwell alone in the forest, that we're alone inside this wall trying to protect ourselves from the enemies. Bring us out back into the garden land where we can have peace and we can have prosperity. In verse 15, the Lord answers. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. The Lord is speaking to the people. God responds with a, with a I will. Um, and he's, uh, Jason talked about chapter 6, verse 4 last week, where, where uh, Micah encouraged God's people to remember their salvation. Verse 4, chapter 6, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt, and I redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. In the same way that I delivered you from your enemy in Egypt, I will show you marvelous things, he's saying here in verse 15. I will show you marvelous things. There will be deliverance for God's people from their enemies. Remember what I've done in the past. Now hang on to my promises for the future. Keep your face pressed against the, the, the glass, looking to the Lord, waiting for the God of your salvation, knowing that God hears you. God rescued his people from Egypt when there seemed to be no hope. God will one day do the same when the nations are against his people. However, what God is speaking of here Primarily, as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. And what Micah could not even begin to comprehend that what happened in 700 years is that on that Christmas morning, 2,000 years ago for us, it was a greater rescue than that of Egypt in the parting of the Red Sea. You see, because, because Jesus 
God, did a swan dive. Who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. And he left. And he dove down into the womb of a virgin. To consummate his rescue plan or to start his rescue plan to free us from the power of sin and Satan and death. In verses 16 through 17, it says, The nation shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands over their mouths, their ears shall be deaf, they shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds or their dens. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. They'll have nothing to say. They'll have nothing to say. God will have the final word. And we close in these amazing verses in 18 through 20. Where Micah has just spent um, six and seven-eighths chapters pronouncing hope to God's people. Reminding them of their deliverance from Egypt and the promised deliverance from the power of sin, Satan, and death. At the same time, he pronounced judgment or discipline on God's people, the believing remnant. And he says in verse 18, who is a God like you? Who is a God like you? A God who pardons iniquity. A God who does not retain his anger forever. And God's anger is a just response to sin. He will punish all sin. But his chief attribute is steadfast love. It's his steadfast love that drove him to give his only son. It's his steadfast love that motivated Jesus from the heavenly home to the womb of a virgin. It's because he delights in steadfast love that he is lopsidedly loving. This is his motivation to pardon us. This is his motivation to have compassion on us. This is his motivation to pass over our sin. It's his principal attribute that is found in the great explanation of God's name in Exodus that we read at the beginning of this sermon. He will have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all of our sins into the depth of the sea. Not only will he overcome our sins, all of our sins will be cast into the depths of the sea. And that's a picture of remembering our sins no more. And for your further study, in these two short verses, 18 and 19, he mentions transgression, iniquity, and sin. And they're different. And I actually had like two pages of definition, and I figured I was going to be late anyways. I figured we could just um, come back tomorrow for a one o'clock service, and we could finish that up. Um, But I would just encourage you to study that on your own. It's kind of fun to see the difference between a transgression, iniquity, and sin. But all that to say, all that to say, when God says this, when he says, 
Who's a God like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? Who does not retain his anger forever? Who will tread over our iniquities underfoot? Who will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea? What he's referring to is some of this and more. It's every type of sin from uh, that is, whether it's in, unintentional, whether it's innocent, whether it's malicious, every type of sin from lying, cheating, pride, lust, idolatry, covetousness, uh, injustice, it doesn't matter. What he's saying is, who is a God like you that gives me a clean slate? Who is a God like you that will be with me and hears me? Who is a God like you that I can call my God? In the last verse 20, He says, you will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. God made a covenant promise to Abraham so that his steadfast love would overflow and be a blessing to the entire world. Brothers and sisters, the better we know the character of God, the better that we understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, the better that we understand that sin has been defeated, Satan has been defeated, and the power of death no longer hangs over us, the more we can look to him and trust him in the hardest of times. The better we know the promises and the covenants of God, the more peace we will have when things fall apart. And I just want to, I want to encourage you. There's, I know there's people here. I've talked to some of you. It's just you're having a hard time. And I pray that this would be a church that, that hears well, that enters into your pain, that weeps when you weep, that frets when you fret. But at the same time, I pray that we'd be a church that, that generally applies the healing salve of God's word to remind one another that the victory's been won. To remind one another that we have a God, your God, who hears. When Micah wrote this, the future of God's believing remnant was bleak. Yet he looked and he waited for Yahweh because he trusted him. So no matter what you're experiencing today, or what you might experience in the future, or might I say what you're going to experience in the future, Keep your face against the window, looking and waiting for your God who hears you. We're going to slide into a, uh, man, I was just told this at the pastor's meeting on Tuesday, that I always say, slide into a time, I didn't believe you. We were, so that's the Cube worship team. We were just, uh, I'm going to digress just for a minute, sorry, I can't help myself. We were just talking about, we're going to do something different, we're going to actually have the, uh, um, the, the band um, sing while we're taking communion. And the question was, well, how do you know, how do we like know when to come up? And Jason says, because you always say, now we're going to slide into communion. I said, I don't say that. <laughs> you know me better than I do. Um, but we are going to slide into communion. And, um, and I praise God. We do communion here. We remember um, God's sacrifice for us. Uh, we celebrate communion once a month here. And we do it the last Sunday of the month. And um, we're not doing it next Sunday because it's, um, we just have, we have a special service of sharing, um, of uh, a prayer and share. So we get to do it today. And I just think it's God's providence that we get to be at the end of this amazing Advent book. And we get to remember why Jesus, 
uh, dove from heaven into the womb of a virgin. That he dove in. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped because he wanted to be your God. He wanted to be my God. And he knew that there was no way that that could happen because we were, we were enemies. It was our sin. It was our iniquity. It was our transgressions that stood in the, between us and a holy God. But Jesus came and was judged. He lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. And he died the death that we each deserved. He died, and on the third day he rose again. He didn't stay dead. He conquered the power of death. And now he reigns at the right hand of the Father. And our God is a good God. He's a loving God. And he's a sovereign God. No matter what you have going on in your life, you can look to that manger. You can look to the blood. You can look to the empty tomb. And you can know that your God is alive and he hears you. So I want to encourage you just to come up and take the elements. Um, take the, the cracker and the juice. Go back to your seat and just uh, partake as the Lord leads you. And um, the, the band will be singing at some point. Feel free to join in whenever you um, want to join in. Um, stay seated. Kneel. Uh, do whatever you need to do. Just pray that you're able to um, worship as you remember Christ's sacrifice on our behalf.